Hello everybody. Welcome to episode 39 of Ask Abhijit. This is the 39th live episode and today we discuss Indian history. I take your questions about Indian history. Before we begin, let me see who all is there. I can see Himanshu, Mahesh Patil, Aryan, Lalita Rao, Chandana Narayan, Barbaric, Harsh Sharma, Palash Thakur, Somya Anand, Abhishek, Srivastav, Sarvesh, Chavan, Devi, Gurav, Swaraj, Oja, Gaurav, Tomar, Abhilash, Taptarshi, Jaydeep, Harshit, Amarinder, Nishkam, Varunaraj, Harshit, Himani, Baba Yaga, Rishabh Patel, Siddharth Mithak. Good evening, good day everybody. It is great to be back with you all. So today we discuss Indian history. I, I have picked up a bunch of questions that you have asked and let me get right into it with question number one. This is by Amlan. Amlan says that a new research found that uh, Indus Valley people used proto-Dravidian languages. Please see this link and please take this question. And the link is provided. So let me let me uh, put the link on the screen and we will discuss that. Where is it? Here it is. Just a second. I will share that part of the screen over here. Just a minute. Okay, here it is. Here it is. So this is an article that claims... Okay, let's see the title of the article. It says, Indus Valley people spoke ancient Dravidian language claims new research. An independent researcher analyzed the various evidence to suggest the possibility of the ancient civilization speaking the ancestral Dravidian language. So the article claims that this new research suggests the possibility that this may be the case. It doesn't prove anything. It is suggesting a possibility. Do you understand the difference between proving something and suggesting a vague possibility of something? That's a huge difference. Suggesting the possibility of something is not the same as proving something. There's an enormous difference between the two. This is merely one of the new claims, one of the millions of claims that people have made over the decades of having uh, found the clues that uh, end this mystery. No, this simply suggests a certain possibility of something. Let's go a little bit further into it. Bahata Ansu Mali Mukhopadhyay, independent researcher, analyzed numerous archaeological, linguistic, and historical evidence and found that the words for elephant, Piri, elephant, Piri, Piru, in Bronze Age Mesopotamia were originally borrowed from Pilu, a proto Dravidian word for elephant, which was prevalent in the Indus Valley civilization. My question is very simple How does this person? Know that, know that this word pilu was prevalent in the Indus Valley civilization? Have we been able to decipher the script of the Indus Valley region, of the Saraswati region? Have we deciphered the script? We have not been able to decipher the script. There are many claims of people claiming that they have deciphered it. None of these claims have stood up to scrutiny. So the script despite so many different claims, is not deciphered as of today. And if the script is not deciphered, how do we know what was the word for elephant in this region? How do we know it? 
in the absence of the decipherment of the script how do we know what was the word for elephant 5000 years ago in western india we don't know it so on what basis has this individual decided that the word for elephant in the indus valley region was pilu there is no logical basis for this claim this research is clearly nonsense and my question is how does such garbage research get published in reputed journals this is the problem in the research in in the academic research that is being done in indology and in the history of ancient india these nonsensical baseless claims get published and they become part of the uh, arc, uh, of the academic canon so the fact is that there is no basis on which we can claim that the indus valley people use so and so word or any other word for elephant or for any other thing we don't know what language they spoke we don't know what word they use we have not been able to decipher the, the script so this there itself this fails the test of logic right and again on the basis of this nonsensical claim this individual has merely suggested the possibility that this region spoke the ancient spoke some ancestral dravidian language this is absolute nonsense it doesn't stand up to even the basic cursory examination from the point of view of logic or from the point of view of facts right and secondly my question is what are the dravidian languages the dravidian language family was invented by the christian missionary bishop caldwell bishop robert caldwell on the basis of his uh, half-hearted examination of just one southern indian language but because it is this great white british christian person who has given us this gift of this language family our academicians have been blindly following it like slaves for the past century and it still continues so we still continue to recognize this artificial language family the so called dravidian language family even though there is no evidence of the word dravida in ancient indian literature whether it is the tamil sangam literature or sanskrit literature literature or any other literature this is an artificial fake language family that has been created by this non expert whose real aim was to christianize india and yet our academicians our academics and our students they blindly follow this nonsense so this is the problem that we face in in even the most basic research into ancient indian history so this claim that the indus valley region saraswati region people spoke an ancient dravidian language it is patent nonsense it is absolute nonsense it is garbage it belongs in the trash bin and that is all i have to say about this my friends okay let's go on to question number 2 abhishek says can you elaborate upon the haplogroup fm89 okay so let us first uh, understand what a haplogroup is a haplogroup is genetic lingo for an ancestral lineage a blood lineage or genetic lineage so it means so a haplogroup is a group of individuals who are alive today and who are all descended from a single individual who lived in the past and who all carry a specific genetic mutation from that one single individual so it is 
a group of individuals it's an extended family that is alive today who all descend from a single individual who lived long ago and who who all carry a specific mutation from that individual so it's a lineage it's genetic lineage it's a bloodline in sanskrit we would call it a vansh right so there are two kinds of haplogroups patrilineal haplogroups and matrilineal haplogroups patrilineal haplogroups are based on the uh, mutations carried in the y chromosome that is passed on from fathers to sons only males carry the y chromosome so patrilineal haplogroups are male lineages these are father to son descents over centuries or even millennia and you have matrilineal haplogroups mitochondrial dna haplogroups so the mitochondrial dna is found in males as well as females but it is only passed on from females to females from mothers to daughters so i carry mitochondrial dna all males carry that mitochondrial dna but males do not pass it on to their sons it is only mothers who pass it on to their offspring so it is a female lineage that is a mitochondrial dna lineage the matrilineal haplogroups so this haplogroup fm89 it is an ancient patrilineal haplogroup right it's a father to son descent it is a specific mutation that arose about 60 to 62000 years ago it it is believed to be between 55 and 65000 years old it means that today there is a group of males who carry this mutation and the originator of this mutation was one single male who lived between 55 and 65000 years ago so it is a very ancient patrilineal lineage haplogroup fm89 now let me show you the uh, geographic origin of this lineage let me share that specific image all right here we are this is the geographical origin of haplogroup m uh, yeah this is the haplogroup fm89 so this haplogroup this patrilineal lineage originated in the indian subcontinent between 55 and 65000 years ago and this lineage haplogroup fm89 is the ancestral lineage of more than 90% of the world's non african males so what this tells us is that there was an there was a way a migration out of africa that gave rise to all of humanity that exists today right and it says that this out of africa migration of ancient homo sapiens it came out of africa and it settled the initial point of settlement after the migration was the indian subcontinent about 65000 years before today so india is the original out of africa founders zone it is where humanity had its first foundation zone it is where humanity first settled down after moving out of africa and from india humanity spread all over the world across eurasia eventually even into uh, north and south america and other places and there were some back migrations back into africa as well which is well attested from genetic evidence so the original lineage the original ancestor of more than 90% of the entire world's non african males is a single male who lived in, in india between 55 and 65000 years before today so that is what this uh 
genetic evidence tells us the genetic evidence of haplogroup FM89 so all of this uh, all of this that you are taught about india being invaded from elsewhere and india getting india getting culture and genetics from elsewhere i think this image itself demolishes all of those fake stories india is the ancestral homeland of all non african humans and it is not just the male haplogroups indian origin matrilineal haplogroups are the ancestors of more than 95% of the world's non european females all right so this is genetic evidence it is irrefutable genetic evidence india is the origin of all non african humans more than 90 95% of all non african humans and this origin is about 60 50 between 65 55 and 65000 years before today so all the europeans all the americans all the chinese everybody all non africans are descended from ancient indians this is the original you could say aryan invasion or aryan migration it is from india that everyone spread outwards that is in brief about haplogroup fm89 yatendra says uh, asks did mount batten and his family really hope and try their best for the good of india as mentioned in texts and shown in movies yeah I, uh, if you watch that movie what's it called gandhi the film that came out in 81 was it 1981 in which mohandas gandhi is portrayed by ben kingsley in that movie they have depicted lord mount batten as a very benevolent kind hearted person who tried his best to uh, achieve something good for india and who tried to prevent partition and who was a great friend of mr mohandas gandhi and mr nehru who were all great indian patriots and freedom fighters etc so that is the uh, story that we are told whether it's in the movies whether it is in our textbooks whether it is our teachers our professors our academicians our media our politicians everybody more or less portrays this bunch of individuals as kind hearted generous people who wanted the best for india now the fact is that mr mountbatten was a british man he, he he was british he was an agent of the british empire and his <clears throat> task was to smoothly partition india with the help of uh, that other lawyer who came to india what was his name i forget his name the guy who actually drew the map uh, the, who drew the boundary the artificial boundary between india and pakistan so this guy mount batten his job was to to ensure a smooth transition of power from the british to the indians who were appointed by the british to take over power it see independence the independence of india was a transfer of power from one set of crooks to another set of crooks that's all it was it was not a democratic process india did not win freedom india was given freedom so to say on the terms that the british decided so we could not form our own kind of governance system we could we did not have our own constitution the first prime minister of india was not even elected he was selected that was nehru and all of this was uh, overseen by mr mountbatten and the purpose of this entire process was to ensure that britain continued 
to have a great deal of say in the internal matters of India and Pakistan. And it was designed to ensure that Britain's geopolitical interests in the region, especially in the uh, western regions of India and the Gulf region, where they had these interests in oil extraction and all that. So the, it was in, designed to ensure that these Brit British geopolitical interests were safeguarded. And the best way to do it was to partition India, have a pro-Britain -pa -Paki pro Pakistan and a mildly or moderately pro-Britain India in the hands of somebody who was an Anglophile, a mentally colonized individual like Mr. Nehru and the, and the various uh, other leaders of the Congress party who were all Anglophiles, who were all British educated, who were all English speaking and who owed everything in their life to the benevolence and generosity of the British Empire. So that is the task that Mountbatten was given. And uh, he also had to ensure that Nehru remained very much on the British side. And to do that, he was even willing to allow his wife to have an affair with Mr. Nehru, as is very well documented. The whole world knows it today. Of course, it is also known that Mr. Mountbatten was a homosexual and he was, well, he had an interest in underage boys, which is a crime in any decent civilized society. But that's what uh, the British did. That's what was their culture. It is still possibly part of the culture in, well, certain Western countries. So Mr. Mountbatten went to the extent of letting his wife carry on a long-standing affair with uh, Mr. Jawaharlal Nehru. The entire world knew it. The whole of India knows it. And this was all designed to ensure that Mr. Nehru was forever indebted to the British and he would continue to pursue pro-British and pro-West policies in India. He, and they knew that Mr. Nehru was not a very capable gentleman or individual. He was not capable of bringing India back to on its feet. And that's what we see anyway, right? He, his regime, his tenure as the Prime Minister of India was the greatest disaster that befell India in the 20th century. And its effects are still with us today. So Mr. Mountbatten and his family were all British agents. They were imperial agents. They were agents of colonialism and imperialism. They did not care about India. They cared about transitioning, about having a smooth transition from one set of crooks to another set of crooks with the overall objective of pursuing and furthering the British national interest and the British geopolitical ambitions and interests in the region. That is all it was. Zhen Panda says, as a Chinese person, the Chinese century of humiliation is one of the few things about Chinese history that can bring me to tears. Even to this day, this is the biggest pain point of Chinese history for most Chinese people today. Yes, so I have spoken about this in a previous episode, the opium, opium wars and how the Western colonial powers tried to oppress and break China. And they did humiliate China. They did impose all these unequal trade treaties. They... Uh, they... Um, pushed in a great, enormous amounts of opium into the country and extracted genuine wealth out of the country, silver and gold. And they essentially impoverished China for a century. Uh, this only happened for a century, so they were not able to totally infiltrate the Chinese empire, the Chinese mainland, and they were not able to impose the English language on the Chinese the way they have done to India. So this is a very uh, tragic century in, in uh, Chinese history that also includes the... Uh, imperial invasion from Japan, etc. So everything prior to the Mr. Mao's takeover of China is kind of part of this entire scheme, this entire century of humiliation.
So this is what is taught in every Chinese textbook. Every Chinese student learns this. It is drilled into their heads that because China was weak, because China was not capable of defending itself, this is what happened to China. And the lesson is that this should never, ever, ever, ever happen again to China. And the lesson is that China needs to strengthen itself economically, militarily, and in all other ways in order to ensure that this sort of humiliation is never brought upon China again. So this is a very interesting counterpoint to the neighboring civilization, the older civilization, which is India. India has suffered a millennium of humiliation. And the contrast is that India's textbooks glorify the humiliators, those who humiliated and, and oppressed India. India has suffered the worst genocide in human history. More than 500 million Indians died over a millennium of foreign occupation. First, the Turkic occupation, which itself may have killed about 500 million Indians. And then the uh, Western occupation, starting from various countries, but it ended up as the British Raj. The British alone killed, I would say, more than 200 million Indians. This is the worst genocide in human history, but our textbooks don't speak about it. They do not, they do not refer to this period as the millennium of humiliation, humiliation. They actually glorify and extol the virtues of our Turkic and European and Christian occupiers and our entire uh, bureaucratic system, the, the judiciary system, the uh, political system, the parliamentary system, the Western-style fake democracy, and the academic system everything is still completely 100% colonized it is still we are still aping the inferior model of the west so this is the contrast between india and china the chinese won their independence through violence there was this protracted civil war and it was a war of independence essentially the communists uh, emerged victorious and they set about extinguishing all traces of foreign occupation and everything that could be ascribed to uh, foreign influences. they It did cause a great deal of destruction in China. One cannot deny that. Mao's uh, rule was horrific. Maybe 80, 90, 100 million Chinese died because of his mismanagement. But at the end of the day, the Chinese have been able to emerge out of it. And it is a proud nation. It is a Chinese nation. They don't learn anything in English. They don't. They reject the English language. Their entire education is in English. So this is all a product of the education, the historical education they are given. They are reminded every day that they have undergone this humiliation and it should never happen again. Indians are anesthetized against this. Indians are told that the past 1000 years were the best thing that could happen to India. So this is the origin of India's slave-mindedness. People in India, unfortunately, it is true, they are slave-minded. They are all mentally colonized. They, they hate Indian culture. They think everything bad that is in India is because of Indian culture, because of our backwardness, inferiority, and all that. Caste is all Indian, and we, we were all casteist, and we were oppressive, and we were brahminical, and we were patriarchal, patriarchal and misogynistic. All of this is a consequence of the past 1,000 years. But we are taught to believe that this is all because of our backwardness, uh, and because of the inferiority of our culture. And the result is very apparent and visible today. India is becoming more and more divided. India is becoming more and more un-Indian and Hindu-phobic, etc. So this is the contrast between India and China. The Chinese recognize the century of humiliation and they have decided it will never happen again. And India embraces the past millennium of humiliation and India hates everything about itself. So this is what we need to wake up from. So please wake up, my friends.
Saherul Haq says, I am an Indian Muslim and I am growing an interest in knowing uh, ancient Indian history, culture and society. How are the Ramayan and Mahabharata related to each other? If not, then what are the differences? I am asking about context and time period and social system, etc. at the time. So it's an enormous question you asked. It's like, see, firstly, we don't quite know when the Mahabharata happened and when the Ramayana happened. Uh, there are a lot of claims that researchers have brought uh, that that uh, the researchers have put forth based on various uh, evidences that we have, especially archaeoastronomical evidence. But yet, that uh, the there are lots of competing claims, so we don't know for sure yet when the Mahabharat happened and when the Ramayana happened. What we know is that the Mahabharat is a more recent event, and the Ramayana is a much older event. These were two very distinct phases in Indian history, and both are several thousand years old. Uh, so that's what we know about uh, these two uh, very important chapters of Indian history. Now, how was the society? It was Indian society. It was a pre-invasion society. There were no traces of uh, either Turkic culture or Arabic culture or Western Christian culture, etc. etc. It was purely Indian. That's what we know. The Ramayana is an older event. It is the, the story of Lord Rama who was sent into exile by his father on the insistence of his stepmother who was his father's uh, second third whatever wife and it is the adventures that befall upon him his brother and his wife during their exile his wife is kidnapped uh, devi sita is kidnapped by the tyrannical barbarian ravan who lives in the island of lanka and then the entire thing is to recapture to 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 free Devi Sita from the clutches of this barbarian, this uh, of this of this demon who is portrayed as a demon. So that is what it is. So in the the the, the geopolitical milieu of the region is is such that uh, Lord Ram is the king or the prince of Ayodhya in northern India, which is the region of Delhi today, and. Uh, and he goes all the way to the south of uh, so the southern regions of india crosses the ocean and uh, reaches lanka so it is an advan- adventure that spans the in- entire indian subcontinent more or less at least from the uh, from northern regions to the uh, southern regions in the mahabharat it is uh, the battle it is it is a war for the throne of hastinapur which is again in northern india in the region of delhi nearby and it is a uh, a fratricidal war it is a war between within a single family between two sets of cousins and a lo- large number of other kingdoms are also involved so the war is not for the whole of india it is merely for the throne of hastinapur and many other kingdoms are involved from from gandhara all the way to the northern parts of india now afghanistan and many other kingdoms were also involved so it looks like during the Mahabharata era, India was more densely populated. You have many more competing kingdoms and all that compared to the Ramayana era. We don't know exactly what form of uh, Indian languages was spoken. Most likely some form of Sanskrit, whether it was pre-Vedic, post, most likely post-Vedic forms of Sanskrit and most likely pre-Paninian forms of Sanskrit. But the Paninian form of Sanskrit arose perhaps around 500 BCE, roughly. That is That is the rough time period when uh, the great uh, great Panini, the great uh, linguist and grammarian Panini lived. And his Sanskrit, the Sanskrit that he codified is the classical Sanskrit. And everything that came before that is either Vedic or post-Vedic Sanskrit. I am sure there was pre-Vedic Sanskrit as well. So that is in brief about the 
Ramayan, Mahabharat era. These are definitely historical events. Western scholars and Indian mentally colonized scholars and Indian Marxist historians will definitely say that these are myths, but these are simply their opinions. There is a great deal of evidence that uh, attests to both these periods of Indian history and to both these wars, Dwarka and the Ramasetu, that totally proves that these events happened. The only thing is we need to de determine when these events happened. So that is in brief, in very brief. I cannot, I mean, you could have a week-long lecture session to talk about the kind of society and the social system and uh, political system, etc., and military tactics you had in those eras. But I'm just giving you a five-minute answer. Maybe that can set you off in the direction of studying this further. Sanath Hoibi says, you've opinionated on the context of Sanskrit to be the official language of India. Won't the Muslim majority, won't the Muslim population particularly express their disapproval? And if it becomes an official language, won't we have a shortage of vocabulary, especially when it comes to subjects like chemistry, biology, sciences, etc.? And do we even have enough Sanskrit literature? So yes, I am of the opinion that Sanskrit should be India's official civilizational language, which it is a status this language have has had for thousands of years. It is this alienation of our ancestral civilizational language from us that is deracinating us and it is contributing to India's decline as a culture, as a nation, as a civilization. We are uh, losing our roots, we are losing our heritage, we are, we are losing touch with our own culture and our heritage. So, and Sanskrit is the oldest known language and it is the language that is the richest and most scientifically oriented. So the question is, won't the Muslim people exp uh, express their disapproval? I don't see why the Muslim people, people should express any disapproval towards Sanskrit. It is their ancestral language as well. The Mus Indian Muslims are our brothers and sisters. They are the descendants of Indians. All their ancestors were Indians, whether it is India, Pakistan, Afghanistan, Bangladesh, or wherever else. Their ancestors are the same as us. The DNA is the same as us. So I don't see why they should they would not want to honor the language of their forefathers and foremothers. I don't see any reason why that would be true. If certain political outfits within that community express their disapproval, then they would be in a small minority. India is a democracy. And in democracy, the will of the people is, is what matters. There will always be some opposition here and there. I mean, uh, your name is Anathoibi. You're from Manipur, right? In Manipur, I know there's a there's opposition towards Sanskrit from some some people, and towards Hindi as well. And there is a there is this new wave of youngsters who are coming in and who are demanding that English should be the official language. I mean, do you even know the history of Manipur? Do you know what happened in 1891? What the British did to the people of Manipur? They hanged your crown prince in public in front of 8,000 Manipuris in the city of Imphal. Yes. And the great general Thangal. Do you know how they destroyed Manipuri society? And yet today's youngsters in Manipur want English. They, they love English. This is because of deracination. Because you're not taught what happened. Because that, because you don't have any emotional connection to what happened just a century ago. To the humiliation and, and um, the atrocities that were perpetrated upon the, pe upon the people of Manipur. So this is the kind of thing that's happening in India. We are deracinated. We have lost touch with our past. And that's why we worship all these false gods and the false ideals and, the, and these inferior languages and inferior foreign cultures. 
the point is sanskrit has to be brought back as the official language of india it is the only language that is suitable and would be acceptable to all right minded people i'm not saying left minded or right minded i mean all intelligent people who know their true history and whether it is in southern india northern india east west wherever it is it is the only language that can serve as the cultural and civilizational language of india some people will always express disapproval and lots of, there are, there are lots of political outfits and parties that owe everything they the, who owe their legitimacy to creating divisions in society for example in the, in the southern states of india you have all these tamil supremacists and tamil chauvinist parties that oppose everything that is non tamil especially everything that is aryan so to say and their legitimacy comes from the fact that they have created this divisions in society and they've created these false sense of alienation in society that uh, the tamils have been oppressed for 2000 or 5000 years by the aryans and that's why we need to have a tamil identity reject everything that's non aryan these are all fake categories that have been created by the british so once india is a little bit more educated and more in touch with its actual true history this sort of disapproval or opposition will come down and of course you need a strong leader who can actually do this there will always be opposition no matter where you are in the world and that's why you need strong leadership in the absence of a strong leader india will remain disunited and fragmented only when you have a leader of the caliber of the greats of the past will india unite again and that is uh, that can happen almost overnight you know once you have a strong leader in in place so okay the other question is once if it becomes an official language will we not have a shortage of vocabulary especially when it comes to subjects like chemistry biology etc you know sanskrit is the richest language in the world it has more than more than 90 synonyms for the word love it has more than 30 synonyms for the word snow and it has the richest scientific vocabulary in the world the uh, the russian chemist mendeleev who is the father of chemistry the father of the periodic table he assigned sanskrit prefixes to the elements in the periodic table so he recognized the superiority of sanskrit over latin or any other european language in terms of uh, uh, in the in the nomenclature of of of, of chemical elements and uh, other scientific words i would say that sanskrit is actually better suited than latin in uh, the nomenclature of taxonomy of animals and species and uh, all that and other things as well i would say that once sanskrit is uh, officially it becomes the language of education especially in science a new vocabulary will automatically evolve from the usage of sandhi etc that covers all of these subjects including the most advanced cutting edge scientific subjects quantum mechanics string theory what not it's it's trivial to uh, to create a nomenclature for all of these uh, all of these subjects in sanskrit and the last question is do we even have enough sanskrit literature you know if you take the literature in sanskrit uh, the ancient uh, literature in sanskrit the vedas the puranas the upanishads the various uh, uh, philosophical treatises whether it is in uh, whichever philosophical school of thought whether it is uh, bodha jaina sankhya mimamsa yoga yoga vedanta whatever if you take all of this together the amount of literary texts that we have the corpus of literary texts 
is more than all of the ancient literature in in all the western languages put together in just one one language sanskrit it is one lifetime is not enough to read even 2% or 1% of this entire corpus of sanskrit literature that is how much sanskrit literature we still have despite all of our ancient universities being burned down and the libraries with them so uh, that is not even an issue we have so much sanskrit literature it 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 can sustain generations upon generations of scholars so i hope i have answered these questions sagar says that if everyone in ancient india spoke sanskrit and it was perfect why did people come up with different languages like telugu kannada etc it's a valid question good question many people would be wondering look sanskrit is the ancient cultural and civilizational language of india it doesn't mean it was the only language in india india is a subcontinent sized geographical region we know how diverse india is there are so many subcultures and regions in india if you grow from one village to another village in a single state you will see a different culture a different dialect being spoken there a different cuisine different way of dressing themselves etc a different ways of uh, whatever rituals they perform etc so you know india is an enormously diverse place and there is an enormous amount of linguistic diversity in india even during the vedic age when vedic sanskrit was prevalent there would be hundreds of other languages and dialects that were around it is not a linear descent from one language to another in a small region let's say a small european country you would have that sort of thing for example in italy you had ancient latin then you had classical latin and then it became italian and even in a small place like italy you had other languages too sardinian language the sardinian language and various other languages those were wiped out eventually by the predominance of latin because this was a hegemonic society in a vast society like india you had hundreds of languages flourishing all the time in parallel with each other it was never a linear descent once you had this language then its descendant language was this and then that it's never been like that it's been a vast network of different languages right so you had many languages evolving in parallel hundreds of languages but the one civilizational language was always sanskrit so people would typically learn in the education system their mother tongue and they would also learn sanskrit and sanskrit would be the medium of education in scientific subjects mathematics logic and various other subjects like uh, history geography and what not so it has always been a two language system your mother tongue and this civilizational language always the cholas take the cholas for instance they spread all across southeast asia they conquered the entirety of southeast asia it's one of the greatest maritime empires of all history and which language did they pro- propagate all across these regions it was sanskrit not tamil and some people will say that there is tamil being spoken in singapore and malaysia etc that is because of tamil influx during the british occupation of this region it is not because of the cholas the cholas spread sanskrit everywhere tell me something do the people of indonesia have tamil names or sanskrit names do the people the 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 the, uh, the kingdoms in cambodia malaysia uh vietnam etc in the philippines and all these regions and in indonesia also did these kingdoms have tamil names or sanskrit names 
Sanskrit. So Sanskrit has always been the high language of culture and civilization and people have always spoken also their mother tongue, whatever it is. But everyone across India, North, South, East, West, always recognized Sanskrit as the civilizational language. That's why you have hundreds of languages and dialects in India, but you also had Sanskrit always. So I hope that explains why it is so. Rishi says, you you asked us to learn Sanskrit, but where to start, how to start, please guide about this. Okay, here we go. Read this book. This book is called Sanskrit Swayam Shikshak. It is the world's best book for learning Sanskrit. Note it down. Sanskrit Swayam Shikshak. You start this book, within 30 minutes you will be speaking Sanskrit. You will be forming your first words and sentences in Sanskrit. If you study this for three months, you will be good at conversational Sanskrit. You have to study 30 minutes a day. Each lesson is 30 minutes long. You have to study for three months. If you study for three months, you will be well on your way to becoming a master in Sanskrit. This book is in Hindi. It is not in English. It is not available in English. So the only requirement is that you should know Hindi. You should should have some familiarity with Hindi. If you can do it, I mean, if I could learn it, so can you. So this is the best book. Go buy it. It's very cheap. It's available online. Maybe next month in the book giveaway, I will give out a few copies of this book. So note it down. Sanskrit Swayam Shikshak. Who's the author? Shripad Damodar Satavlekar. That is the author. Check it out. Buy the book and start learning. It is a brilliant book. The best book in the world for learning Sanskrit. Karan Rana says, do were dogs like animals, were animals like dogs seen as true companions in our ancient times? Uh, basically how they were treated compared to today's time, especially in Mahabharata and Ramayana era. See, uh, we know that the Indian species of dog, the Indian breed of dog is the ancestor of all dogs, is the oldest breed of dog in the world. And uh, it's it's been India for tens of thousands of years. It is a naturally evolved breed of dog. For example, in the West and other places, you have all these fancy dog breeds, Alsatians and German Shepherds and Dalmatians and Chihuahuas and Poodles and Pomeranians and what not. Great Danes, St. Bernards and all, all these dogs. These are all artificially bred species of dogs. No, not species, breeds of dogs. So they have been bred selectively to enhance certain traits. And these dogs everywhere in the world, these artificially bred breeds of dog, they are prone to various illnesses, etc. They don't live very healthy lives and all. The Indian breed of dog, this Indian street dog, the yellow brown dog, you know, the the pariah dog they call it. This is the world's oldest breed of dog. It's naturally evolved. It is naturally resistant to all kinds of illnesses and other problems. It is one of the most intelligent breeds of dog. It is the most social and friendly breed of dog. And it's always been around as long as Indian civilization has existed. So I don't know about the Ramayan time, but in the Mahabharata, there is this very famous uh, episode, right? After the war is over, the Pandavas are instructed to uh, renounce their kingdom because their duty is done. And the next generation is to take over. 
and they essentially go to the Himalayas to spend out their lives there and ascend to the summit of Mount Meru, which is where Swargalok is. So their work on the planet Earth is done. It is time for them to move on. So Beam, Arjun and the, the five brothers and Draupadi, the wife, they all move on to the Himalayas. They start crossing the Himalayas. And one after the other, these brothers and, and Draupadi also, they one after the other start dying because of the harsh conditions of the Himalayas. At the end, Yudhishthir is left with a companion who is a dog. So this dog started with these five, with these six, at the beginning of the journey. At the end, only Yudhishthir is left with the, with the dog. And Yudhishthir starts climbing the great mountain, Mount Meru or Mount Kailash with the dog. The dog, dog accompanies him everywhere. And when he's climbing the mountain, maybe he's like one third of the way up, uh, Lord Indra himself comes on his chariot, on his flying chariot. And he tells Yudhishthir that your work is done. You don't need to climb all the way up. You just need to hop into my chariot. I'll take you to Swargaloka. So Yudhishthir says that, okay, I will do it. Let, let my dog get in first. So Lord Indra says, no, this is for you. It's not for the dog. So Yudhishthir refuses to climb on the chariot unless the dog is also allowed. He says that this dog has been faithful to me throughout my journey. I cannot betray this dog. He is my friend. He is my companion. And then the dog transforms into a human form, in the, in, into the form of the great deity Dharma. And he says that you are the true Dharma Raj because you have always followed Dharma. So that kind of illustrates the relationship that we Indians and our ancestors for thousands of years have had with dogs. We have always cherished the dog as our best friend. It has been our companion for thousands of years. And this is brought out in the form of this little anecdote from the Mahabharata era. So yeah, we have always, see India has always been kind to animals compared to any other culture. For example, our Chinese neighbors, they are a more recent culture and civilization. They do not uh, see compassion as one of the uh, key components of their culture. And you can see that in the, the way they treat animals, which, well, I would not even want to talk about, right? The treatment of animals is rather horrific. In contrast, in India, of course, people did eat meat in the in, in, forever, essentially. I mean, if you look at ancient... Uh, Stone Age, Iron Age, uh, archaeological artifacts. You, you do find fishing hooks and harpoons and all that, which was used in fishing and hunting. You do find these. You find depictions in the Bhimbekta caves, etc., of people hunting animals. So it has always been part of Indian culture, but cruelty has never been part of Indian culture. In, Indian culture has always been compassionate. Indian culture has always treated animals with compassion and dignity and love. Even when animals were hunted, there was no unnecessary cruelty, right? And dogs especially were our great companions for essentially forever. And that we can see in the story of Yudhishthir and his friend, the dog. Who So in Indian society and culture and civilization, dogs do go to heaven, all right? Okay. Pink line cabs. Why didn't the mighty Cholas launch an attack on northern India? Maybe they could have in saved India from the tyrant Mahmud Ghazni or other invaders. That's an interesting question. So the Cholas, the, the pinnacle of the Cholas was uh, Rajendra Chola and Raj Raj Chola, wasn't it? The two great kings who lived in the, the end of the 10th century and the beginning of the 11th century. And it is... Uh, 
I think it was who was it? Rajendra was it Raj Raj Chola? I think it was Raj Raj Chola who expanded the kingdom to its greatest extent, the empire to its greatest greatest extent all across Southeast Asia. And this, these two kings, the father and the son, they were in power one after the other during roughly the period of these invasions when these invasions from Mahmud of Ghazni etc happened in India. So the question is why didn't they uh, intervene and uh, expel this tyrant, this invader out of India and back into his lair in the mountains of Ghazni in northern India, in Afghanistan. The thing is these guys, see in those days we did not have instant communication the way we have today. If an invasion is happening and the local Solanki king calls up uh, Rajraj Chola and says, hey, this is happening, we need your support. So in that case, this guy may have been able to come all the way to northern India in maybe two, three weeks. And he could have provided assistance to the kings in northern India. But in those days, India, I mean, we, we are accustomed to seeing India on the map as this big. It's enormous. It's actually an enormous subcontinent sized geographical region. And traversing distances of thousands of kilometers takes months, actually, especially when you have something as large as an army, which is 100,000 plus strong with all the equipment and all the logistics it entails. So even if Raj Raj Chola had come to know about what's happening in northern India, it would have taken him a great deal of time to come all the way to North India. Secondly, most likely he did not come to know until many months later. Right? And his entire focus, his entire energies were dedicated in Southeast Asia where he was, where he had this enormous empire. There's a great deal, there's a lot of complications. And, and there's, there's a lot of things that you need to attend to when you are learning and uh, running an enormous empire that large and you don't have instant communications. So he was, his entire uh, life was preoccupied in building and consolidating and administering this enormous empire in India, uh, in southern India and Southeast Asia, all the way up to the Philippines. So firstly, he would have not come to know about what's happening. And, and secondly, even if he had come to know, maybe he was not in a position to come and divert his entire focus, energies and army into northern India, maybe that could have led to the downfall of his empire in Southeast Asia. Because if you divert all of your resources, your energies, your soldiers, etc., to northern to, to another part of the world, then the local kings, etc., will declare themselves independent. It is the nature of power. Power abhors a vacuum. So that vacuum was filled by the Chola Empire. Had they redirected their energies and manpower and supplies to another place, there would have been a power vacuum in Southeast Asia, in Southeast Asia. And that would have been instantaneously filled by the local kingdoms. They would have all declared themselves independent, and the Chola Empire would have crumbled overnight. And the third reason is that perhaps, most likely, even if he wanted to do all this, his empire was a maritime empire. His empire's strength, military strength, was in the maritime domain. It was a thalassocratic empire, a maritime empire. So they knew how to fight naval wars and naval battles. They were suited for that. Maybe they did not, they did not have the kind of infantry and uh, strategic and tactical uh, experience needed to, to fight a long protracted military campaign on land, especially the kind of uh, uh, geography you have in northern India. So these are some of the reasons why it was not possible for the Cholas to 
intervene in northern India to go all the way to North India and repel the invaders who came from beyond. Okay, this is a whole lot of questions all related to caste. Kuldeep says, like you mentioned a few times in previous videos, Hinduism doesn't need any reform, but it needs to rejuvenate. How would you explain the casteism that was and still is so much deep-rooted even today in the so-called modern and progressive India? Om says, when did caste-based oppression start in Bharat and what are the reasons it continued until now? Uh, the next question is, did the British remove the caste system and educate Indians by building schools? And Hitkesh Vaghela says, why are the surnames of Rajputs and Dalits the same in Gujarat? A bunch of questions all related to caste. Okay, so let's begin. Uh, let me share some literature with, with you all. Let me hide this and share my screen. Okay, just give me a minute. I need to make a few recommendations, reading recommendations and study recommendations. Where are we? This is a book recommendation. So I have stated in the past that the caste system is a Western invention. Many of you have been skeptical and you have said that this is all something I pulled out of my hat. It's not. Uh, so this is one book recommendation, The Western Foundations of the Caste System by Martin Farek, Dudkin Jalki, etc., etc., etc. A good book. I would recommend this. And if you want a review of this book, an overview of this book, then I would suggest this. It is a book review by Soumya Day on India Facts. Look it up on Google. Find this article. Read it. It, it demonstrates how the West, how the British essentially uh, imposed this artificial construct called the caste system on India. Here is one more book recommendation. It is Castes of Mind, Colonialism and the Making of Modern India. It's by Nicholas Dirk. This is also an excellent book. So this also tells you how the British created this fake artificial caste system. And I would recommend one more article by a guest who has been on this podcast before, Dr. Subhash Kak. This is called The Idea of India, in which he also goes into uh, how the West, especially the British, created all these artificial divisions in Indian society. So these are some recommendations. You can pause the video later when you're watching and check out these uh, articles and uh, books online. If you are serious about understanding this, I would recommend that you should actually read these articles and even study the books in detail. Otherwise, well, I, I can't force you to do that. But if you're serious in understanding all this, then you should actually spend the time, invest the time in studying this to understand how this country has been misled. Okay, so let me come back to this. So my point is this is a British creation. We believe because of our education system, etc. And because of our brainwashed uh, previous generations, the past two, three generations who are all thoroughly brainwashed. So we believe that the caste system is an ancient Indian evil. It is one of the uh, forms of backwardness of Indian society. Our ancestors were evil. Like somebody said once. So this is all nonsense. Okay, let me take up Hitesh Vagela's question. Why are the surnames of Rajputs and Dalits the same in Gujarat? Because they're the same people. They are the same people. There is no such thing as this fake caste. There have been divisions in society, Jati and Varna. 
Varna is occupation. Jati is your lineages. Like you have this haplo groups that we spoke about some time ago. India is home to thousands of jatis, thousands of patrilineal and matrilineal lineages. And you have Varnas, which are these ancestral occupations. It is prevalent all over the world. If you look at British surnames, one of the most common surname is Smith. What is Smith? It is a metal worker. What is blacksmith? Blacksmith, blacksmith is a common British surname. A blacksmith is a metal worker. What is Thatcher? A Thatcher is somebody who thatches roofs. This is a medieval occupation. People still carry that surname. So these occupations have been passed on from generation to generation to generation. It stays within families. This is prevalent all over the world. If you look at every single British surname, English-speaking people's surname, you will find these ancestral occupations. These are Varnas. This is prevalent all over the world. It is not exclusive to India itself. Right? Now, what about the Rajputs and the Dalits? So the Rajputs are the uh, have traditionally been the Kshatriyas, the, the war warrior class, the aristocracy of the country. The Kshatriyas have been the aristocrats. The Brahmins have been the ones who uh, preserved the country's knowledge, the civilization's knowledge for thousands of years. So the entire society in India, even today, we revere knowledge. We, we, we respect people who are knowledgeable, right? People who are learned, people who are scholarly, we worship them. Many of, many of us actually worship such people. That is because of our inbuilt reverence for knowledge. It is, in, it is built into our DNA. And naturally, the people who were the most learned for thousands of years were the people who passed it on from generation to generation, the, the, the Brahmins. But it was not exclusively for within a certain, uh, certain families. You could become a scholar on your own, as we know very well from our ancient universities. Every It was open to everybody. Even a Chinese person like Xuanzang was admitted into Nalanda University, the highest seat of learning in the known universe at the time. So that is what made him a Brahmin because he was able to get admission there. Now, when it comes to Rajputs and Dalits, why are these uh, names the same? It is because when the Turkic occupations, uh, Turkic invasions and occupation of India happened in Gujarat and among other Rajputs also, they gave three choices. It was not two choices, it was three choices. Convert, die or declare yourself a Shudra. So many Rajputs chose to die. They would not convert. They would not do anything anything like that. Many Rajputs converted. The entirety of the Pakistani army is Muslim Rajputs. Parvez Musharraf is a Muslim Rajput. Uh, what's his name? That other fellow, the previous chief of staff, he's a Rajput. They are all Muslim Rajputs. And they are proud of being Muslim Rajputs. They are proud of their Rajput lineage. So many Rajputs converted. And some Rajputs refused to convert. They refused to die. So they declared themselves Shudras. That we are no longer Rajputs. We will no longer fight. So that, these are the three conditions that the invaders imposed upon the ones who could fight and resist them. That's why, and some actually survived, some fought, some resisted, and some survived. So you have Hindu Rajputs, you have Muslim Rajputs, and you have the so-called Dalit Rajputs. They are the same people, the same ancestry, the same DNA. Isn't that interesting? Okay. So this is the truth about the caste system. I, I will definitely make a detailed video about this, a separate standalone video about this, because this is a this is a complex topic. It needs to be un unpacked and analyzed properly. But I have given you some book recommendations. I have given you a couple of articles to read. Do that if you are serious about understanding this. And uh, 
I, I hope you guys do it, you know. Okay, next question. Krishna says, if Afghanistan is called the graveyard of empires, then how did Maharaja Ranjit Singh manage to control and rule Afghanistan? So Maharaja Ranjit Singh uh, did not control and rule the entirety of, of Afghanistan. He, What he did was he freed many regions of India, northern and western India, especially Punjab and Kashmir, from the occupation that began with Ahmad Shah Abdali. So Ahmad Shah Abdali was a Pashtun. Uh, he was an invader. He, he, It is with Ahmad Shah Abdali that the Afghans start considering themselves as non-Indians because Ahmad Shah Abdali actually helped Nadir Shah, the Persian emperor, Persian king, in his invasion of India, which turned into a horrific bloodbath. So it is with Ahmad Shah Abdali in the 17th, 18th century, thereabouts, that Afghanistan became a separate uh, ethno-cultural and political entity. So this guy, uh, Ahmad Shah Abdali, he launched seven or eight invasions of India. He took over Kashmir, he took over parts of Punjab, and he perpetrated horrible atrocities in these regions. It is the beginning of the Kashmir problem. It is when a significant population, significant percentage of the Kashmiri population got converted, and that is where everything originates, right? So Maharaja Ranjit Singh freed Kashmir. He expelled the Pashtuns, the, the Afghans, out of Kashmir, out of Punjab. And as a punitive measure, he conquered uh, significant portions of Afghanistan, but not the whole of Afghanistan. He did not conquer Kabul. He did not, he did not conquer other northern parts of Afghanistan. But he conquered the southern regions of Afghanistan, the regions that are, that are now south of the Durand line and which lie in Pakistan. So all of that was Maharaja Ranjit Singh's empire. Right? So how did he manage to expel the Afghans from their occupation of Kashmir and Pakistan, uh, of uh, Punjab, etc.? It's because he uh, instituted a number of wide-ranging reforms in his military. One of the major reasons why Indians were losing to the Europeans was because of the different tactics the Europeans had and the different weapons, the more modern weapons they brought with themselves. So Maharaja Ranjit Singh employed European mercenaries in his army. He uh, he uh, he rose them to uh, various uh, positions of reasonable prominence in the army, but he never appointed them as overall generals or anything. But he did elevate them to, re- to positions of eminence and prominence in the army. And their tactics were adopted into the uh, army of Maharaja Ranjit Singh and new weapons were also uh, were also inducted into the army and it is and the entire focus of the military operations was on winning by any means whatever tactics are necessary were to be employed and we were to win and reclaim uh, our territories so it is because of this change in approach and because of this more modern and more practical, more pragmatic approach that Maharaja Ranjit Singh was able to expel the Afghans out of Indian territories and to actually capture and retain the southern regions of Afghanistan as well. This is a long question. It is by Jijo Alex Kakkatiu. He says that this may seem self-serving, but in any case, hearing from you will probably highlight the case about the lack of understanding of the general populace about my community, the Syrian Christians of Kerala. 
uh, I know you've said there is no historical proof of Saint Thomas having traveled to India. You have to understand also that there is no not any there is no proof regarding the existence of Jesus Christ either. But you will have to agree to the fact that the existence of Christians in Kerala long before the Europeans embraced the religion. I would also like to point out that my community has been persecuted by the Portuguese simply because we did not adhere to their culture and traditions. The Kunan Cross Oath is the best example of that. The schisms in the church in Kerala at this time is testament to all the politics the Portuguese and later the British played. Although in Kerala our existence is understood, it is my community's existence that the other people of my beloved country fail to understand. We are after all by faith Christian and by culture Hindu. Your point of view will shed some light and many can then not conveniently paint everyone with the same brush. I agree with you, uh, Jijo Alex. Uh, this is a complex topic. See, the Syrian or Syriac Christians of Kerala are a community that seems to date back about 1900 years. So clearly before any foreign occupation or invasion or occupation of India, definitely more than a thousand years before the European invasions and occupation of India, especially in southern India, it was the Portuguese. So the, this, um, so the, the Syriac, Syrian Christian community in India believes that they uh, were converted by Thomas the Apostle, Saint Thomas, who came to India, preached Christianity, and uh, and converted a number of people in the Malabar region, in the in the Kerala region, to uh, Christianity. That is Syriac or Syrian Christianity. They they practiced their lit liturgical rites in an ancient Syriac language, a dialect of the old Aramaic language, I believe. And the, when the Portuguese uh, occupied this part of India, they tried to force these Christians, Indian Christians, into adopting Portuguese, uh, a Portuguese version of Christianity in which Latin was the predominant language, not the Aramaic dialect. So they tried to impose this upon the local Christians, upon the Syrian Christians. They tried to impose Latin and other forms of other Portuguese forms of worship. So at some point in time, after about 50 years, the Syriac, Syrian Christians rebelled against the Portuguese. They made this vow of, of affirmation, which is called the Kunan Cross Oath, in which they rejected the Portuguese flavor of Christianity and reverted to their older uh, rituals and uh, Aramaic language, etc. So, so to, they reverted to their older uh, version or, or rites of Christianity. So this was a, a repudiation of the European culture that had been brought into uh, this part of India. So definitely it is true that the uh, Syrian Christians are a much older community. It is believed to be about 1900 or so years old. The belief is that it is St. Thomas who converted them to Christianity. So listen, the thing is this. You are right. There is no evidence of St. Thomas. There is no evidence of uh, the Lord Jesus Himself. They have archaeologists have been searching for evidence of uh, Jesus Christ for decades or centuries, and thus far there is no hard evidence. It doesn't mean he may not have existed. He may perhaps have existed. Uh, Thomas the Apostle also most likely existed. The only question is, did he ever come to India? I have no question. I have no issue with e even if he actually did come to India. The issue is the portrayal of Indians in this story. They portray Indians as as, as primitive barbarians who who killed Thomas the Apostle because he was uh, converting Indians. 
there is no evidence that this gentleman ever came to india firstly and secondly there is no evidence whatsoever that he was murdered by indians but this is now the canonical story to show india in a bad light to show the people of india in a bad light so that is what i have a problem with that is what all indians would have a problem with with this fake depiction this false fabricated de- depiction of indians as uh, murderous barbarians right but apart from that yes you are right you the syrian christians are of course by culture and by dna hindu but the funny thing is that uh, the curious thing is that uh, syrian christians some of them call each other call themselves mapila the word mapila is a honorific term that is uh, which means descendant of foreigners i believe even the muslims of kerala call themselves mapila so mapila or mopla it means a descendant of foreigners especially from the middle east so even the syrian christians consider themselves to be at least some of them consider themselves to be descendants of people from the middle east from the uh, region of judea and and the arabic regions etc so this is a, i i this is a bit curious i mean so does it mean that the syrian christians are originally the descendants of some some people who migrated to india from that region and is it is that how the religion was brought into india so the origins of this community are a little bit obscure um, the the official version is that saint thomas came and converted them but it looks like because they call each other mapila etc that they may actually be the descendants of a small group of migrants who came to this part of india for whatever reason it's like the afghan pashtuns the afghan pashtuns they say that we are the descendants of one of the lost tribes of israel but dna analysis shows that there is not this is not the case they are an extension of the overall indian population but the claim they make to to perhaps to justify their conversion to to the other religion uh, to to islam is that we are the descendants of of middle easterners and all that and the pakistanis similarly claim descent from turks so i am not really sure what is the origin of this community of course you are very much indian you are indian by dna uh, you practice a much older form of christianity than these europeans who tried to impose a different form of christianity on you so by culture hindu i am not sure how culturally hindu christianity is um yeah it is true that many uh, christians in, in india have hindu names i think a majority of christians in india have hindu names but they practice christianity so by that sense you could say that yes indian christians are to some extent by by culture hindu but on the other hand there is definitely a very strong uh, movement towards explicitly re- rejecting hindu culture among indian christians especially in the past one or two generations as uh, christian conversions uh, pick up speed right now which we are witnessing everywhere so this is a very uh, complicated topic it is uh, the syrian christians are definitely a, a, one of the oldest christian communities in the world if you go by the official version that it is 1900 years old i would like to see some sort of dna analysis as to to see exactly what sort of dna uh, components this community has uh, is there any middle eastern or syrian uh, trace of dna among these people or not so th- that's an interesting uh, topic but uh so yeah that's that's what i would have to say about this this is a matter for debate it's a matter that uh, needs more historical research 
DNA research and, and, and much more. The uh, story of Thomas the Apostle traveling to India is very much a myth. Uh, some people said there is a church up on some hill and that proves that the St. Thomas was in India. How does the presence of a building on a hill prove anything? I mean, it proves nothing. Just because there is a church on some hill or whatever doesn't prove anything. It's just a building on a hill. It doesn't prove that some individual was in India 1900 years ago. The only way to prove that he was in India was if his remains are found in India or there is undeniable literary evidence from multiple sources that attests to the the fact that he was in India. But there is a marked absence of such evidence. Debraj Biswas asks, how did the Parsis come to India and help India? We know they came to India, but what about help? I'm not sure they ever helped India. So, uh, so here's what we know about the Parsis. The Parsis are uh, Zoroastrians. They are the descendants of a, of a of a small group of of a reasonably small group of refugees who escaped from persecution in Iran in Persia, and who were granted refuge in Western India, in Gujarat. So around the 8th century or so, 7th or 8th century, up to the 9th and 10th centuries, there was this great persecution of Zoroastrians in Persia. Persia had been uh, invaded and conquered by the Arabs, and the country was very rapidly Islamized. And then there was this this pogrom against the Zoroastrians. They were all uh, given the option option to convert or die, essentially. So many... There was a great deal of resistance for some time, but within 20-30 years after the invasion, the majority of the population of Persia was converted to to Islam. So some people tried to escape this religious persecution, this brutal religious religious persecution, and they came to India in the hope of surviving. And the king, the local king in, in Gujarat at the time, he magnanimously allowed these Parsis, these Persians, to settle down in his kingdom, in his territory, in western India, in uh, southern Gujarat. The first place where they came to was a small village called Sanjan. They named the place Sanjan after the town they escaped from, which is Zanjan in Iran. So they were allowed magnanimously by the Indian king to settle down in southern Gujarat. They were allowed to settle down and to continue practicing their religion and culture. There would be no interference in their activities. The only condition is was that they would assimilate harmoniously with the local uh, people. So they were to adopt the Gujarati language and Gujarati dress um, if they were to settle down there. And they agreed to this. So it was a very magnanimous uh, gesture towards, these, uh, towards the Persians who were escaping with their lives. They settled down in Gujarat. They adopted the Gujarati language and Gujarati dress and, and, and customs. But they continued to practice their culture, their religion, Zoroastrianism. And they have been doing this for the past thousand plus years. And there have been several waves of migration of Persians. So they were called Parsis because Parsi comes from Persia, Parsa, Parshwa. Uh, and the religion also came to be known as Parsi. Even in the 19th century, there were some more waves of migrations of, of Zoroastrians into India, into Western India. They were called Iranis, as in contradistinction with the older, earlier Parsis. But they're the same people, same religion, same culture. 
Now, if you look at the DNA, if you look at the DNA of the Parsis, it is quite strange that their matrilineal DNA, the mitochondrial DNA, is closest to, to the Gujaratis. So they, they are closest to the Gujaratis than to either the Maharashtrians or Punjabis or Bengalis or Sindhis or Persians in terms of matrilineal DNA. But in terms of patrilineal DNA, they are closest to the Persians. So this tells us a very stra- very interesting thing, that these Parsis, they did not marry among Gujarati men, but they did, ex- they did uh, take Gujarati women into their families as, as wives. And that's why they are a mix of Persians and Gujaratis. From the matri- matrilineal side, they are almost exclusively nowadays Gujarati. But from the patrilineal side, from the YDNA, YDNA perspective, they are still to a significant extent uh, closest to the Persians. Now, these guys, these people, they came into India sometime around the 8th century, between the 7th and the 10th centuries, more than a thousand years ago. And they settled down in Gujarat. And for more than 8th centuries, they were a small agricultural community. They were given all the freedom and all the rights that every other Gujarati or Indian had. And they were a small agriculture community. Agricultural community, they uh, expanded to small towns like Nausari, Udwada, and even they even settled in, in uh, Sindh, some of them. There is still a very small population of, of Parsis in Karachi. I wonder what the condition is, but they are still there. And so on. Because at the time, even Karachi was a Gujarati-speaking, uh, to a large extent, a Gujarati-speaking city. So it was all ar- along the same coast, and that's where they settled down. For about 800 years, they were a small, quiet, sedentary uh, agricultural community. Now the strange thing is this, when the British occupied India and when they took over Western India, they identified the Parsis as a community to uplift. So the British, they practiced this policy of divide and rule. This is what they have practiced worldwide. They take a community, they take a society and they create artificial divisions in the society they play sides, they take one community, uplift it and oppress everybody else. So they chose to uplift the Parsis, they special, they, they singled out the Parsis for special treatment. And what they did was that they bestowed favors upon the Parsis, they allowed the Parsis to, to, to become closer to them as their servants and, and chauffeurs and uh, bankers and all that. They gave them uh, benefits like uh, they allowed them to practice certain trades and occupations, shipbuilding, etc., banking, uh, and all that. So all of a sudden, within a few decades, this community, which had achieved absolutely nothing for 800 or 1,000 years, suddenly became industrialists and suddenly became very wealthy. And today, it is believed by all Indians that the Parsis are a special, magnificent, uh, extraordinary, pe- extraordinary people who have... Uh, enriched India with their greatness. The fact is that they were given special treatment by the British at the expense of everybody else in India. And it is because of the British largesse that the, that the Parsis have become so rich. And all of the wealth the Parsis have accumulated is actually the wealth that was stolen from Indians and by the British and it was given over to the Parsis. And let me, let me share something with you. Uh, so the Parsis essentially 
owe everything, everything that they have to British munificence. So let me give you an example of of this. So this is a gentleman called Kawasji Jahangir Ready Money. Look at his surname, Ready Money. So this guy was a Parsi community leader, philanthropist and industrialist of Bombay, India. Okay, He was born into a wealthy family, Parsi family, who were all benefiting from generations of uh, British largesse and, and uh, generosity. And he was called Ready Money which he by the British because he was always generous in giving money, donating money to the British causes. And he actually took that as his surname, Ready Money. So this is a fountain that he uh, built with, with his money in Regent's Park, London. It cost lots, I mean, a huge amount of money. And he ha- he owned many large housing estates in London, etc. And he did a lot of philanthropy in Britain, such as building these fountains and various other things. This here is a sculpture of Kawasji Jahangir Ready Money in the College of Edinburgh for his services to British society. And the tragic thing is that at the time when he was when he was investing, when he was donating millions of pounds or millions of rupees of this money to the British, this was the time when India was undergoing year after year of terrible famines. Millions of people were dying every year in India because of artificial famines created by the British. And these millions of rupees that he donated for British causes could have saved millions of Indian lives. And everybody in India knew what was happening at the time. And yet he chose as a good servant, as a good slave to please his British masters and and throw this money, to bestow his money, which came from British generosity on the British. So this is the kind of... (laughs) of, uh, enrichment the Parsis did in India and uh, this here is his nephew Jahangir Kawasji Jahangir Ready Money. He was another prominent member of this family. He was the nephew of the previous guy I showed and he has been created, uh, he was created a baronet in the United Kingdom. A baronet is a rank in the British aristocracy. So this these ranks are given for services to the British Empire. And the service was to basically enrich and empower the British Empire. So the fact is that all of this money that the Parsis enjoy today is entirely a consequence of the British generosity towards them. It is because of the British policy of divide and rule. They uplifted the Parsis at the expense of everybody else whom they impoverished and starved to death. And all of the money that these guys enjoyed was money that actually belonged to the people of India. And today the Parsis are the richest community in India. It is all old money. And when we talk about old money, it is money that has been given to them. That is, they have earned because of British generosity at the expense of the people of India. Now, I have nothing against the Parsi people. It is not their fault they are rich today. (laughs) It is not their fault at all. I don't, I have, I hold no grudge against the Parsis. They are very nice people. I even know some Parsis. No issue with them. But understand the history. Understand how these impressions are created. That the Parsis have enriched India with their superior uh with with uh, with their extraordinary qualities 
they they are today people think of parsis as 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 uh, extraordinary industrialists and entrepreneurs and all that the fact is that indians have have this entrepreneurial gene for millennia it is traders from kalinga who went all across southeast asia and who who built kingdoms in these regions and enriched southeast asia as a consequence all the hinduized kingdoms in vietnam the funan kingdom etc was all a consequence of the traders from kalinga the industrialists and entrepreneurs from kalinga who who embarked upon these initially very dangerous dangerous and perilous voyages into the unknown and went all across asia later it was the cholas and various other peoples from india who went all across southeast asia it was indian monks during kanishka time kanishka's time etc who crossed the himalayas and went all the way thousands of kilometers into china and enriched china with indian culture and also carried out trade in all kinds of commodities it is indians who carried out trade with rome who sent ships to rome it it is indians gujaratis and and these uh, marwari and gujarati banias who have been trade carrying out trade for thousands of years in the country it is gujaratis who settled down in eastern africa for centuries and carried out trade there it is this entrepreneurial dna is part of india of every indian the parsis are nothing special they did not come to india and enrich us with their presence they were in india for 800 or 1000 years doing absolutely nothing they were perfectly ordinary until the british chose to elevate them with all this special treatment so that is the history of the parsis in india in brief nothing against them they are very nice people they are, they are very likable people as well absolutely nothing against them but this is the true history Sidan says I have a hypothesis that partition had an unintended positive outcome for India a major portion of separatists extremists jihadists etc went to Pakistan now we have fewer of these people to deal with so we could avoid a lot of bad reputation associated with Pakistan etc could India avoid another civil war between separatists and nationalists is there anything good that came out of Pakistan of partition for India and what would have been the picture if partition didn't happen see partition happened because of uh, the congress party because of the leadership of mr mohandas gandhi and mr jawahar lal nehru and various other congress leaders it was all a british agenda the british used the congress party and the muslim league as the tools for carrying out partition it had a geopolitical objective like i have spoken about several times even in uh, just a few minutes ago so that was the objective of partition and that is why they did partition now had somebody like subhash chandra bose been successful in his campaign to take back india to to liberate india from the british let's let's uh, examine a hypothetical scenario in which subhash chandra bose liberates india from the british and sets up an independent indian government independent of the british or the japanese now would a person like subhash chandra bose have ever allowed partition yes mr gandhi would have been in india he would have advocated partition mr jinnah would have advocated partition mr nehru would have advocated partition and the various muslim league leaders etc the khilafat people etc would have advocated partition what would somebody like subhash chandra bose have done i suspect he would have shot them all 
that's the kind of person he was and that is what he would have done in the face of a demand for partition for when subhash chandra bose fought for india's freedom hindus muslims sikhs jains buddhists etc fought for him they bled for him and they died for him they died for mother india if subhash chandra bose had been successful there would have been no partition and any pro partition elements in the country would have been dealt with in a terrible manner subhash chandra bose bose wanted dictatorship in india for at least 20 years in today's world that would have been called fascism i don't care what it's called that's what he would have done had he been the president of india had he been the leader of india he possibly could have been a stalin like figure in india and he would have stamped out any anti national or separatist opposition thoroughly so what you're talking about is that there is so much jihadism and terrorism and extremism in pakistan because all these elements went to pakistan well the fact is that had india not been partitioned had somebody like subhash bose been there he would have dealt with it severely and today there would be no such elements in the country he would have ruled india for 20 30 years with an iron hand and that iron hand would have ensured that no such thing would have happened we see history from the perspective of what's happened today but history could have been very different it's all about leadership if you have the right leaders then such elements and such sentiments simply don't emerge in the country india has its own distinct culture a very ancient culture that would eventually have been revived under the rule of somebody like subhash chandra bose and any separatism would have been stamped out so i disagree that partition was good for india india needed a strong leader an iron fisted leader at the time when a country emerges from a thousand years of of chaos of chaos it doesn't need liberal democracy it needs iron rule for 20 30 years that's what you see everywhere in the world it happened in china now china is becoming slowly more progressively different from what it was under under chairman mao south korea had 20 years of dictatorship after this the korean war the japanese had 70 plus years of american occupation the soviets had their own thing so so the, the fact is that had india not been partitioned and had india had a strong leader like mr bose then none of these problems would ever have existed and that is why i have always been saying that partition was a terrible thing for india we lost our ancestral territories the territories our ancestors lived in for thousands thousands of years it is because the british wanted it and because people like mr gandhi and mr nehru and the various other congress leaders and mr jinnah they all ensured that this happens if mr bose had been there this would never have happened and there would have been no jihadism extremism separatism khilafatism or whatever else in india Sharan says while still immensely respecting all sacrifices made by martyrs against foreign occupying forces do you think it is time to stop portraying independence day as if india as a nation was born on that day negating thousands of years of prior independence history and achievements before that possibly even renaming the day to something like veer yodha divas or punar janma divas see india as a nation as a westphalian nation state was created in 1947 out of something much bigger before 1947 india was a civilization state that was under foreign occupation before 
if you go back more than a thousand years before today, India was a vast civilization state that had sometimes a single political dispensation, one single empire, and sometimes it had multiple kingdoms, etc. But it was always one civilizational entity. In 1947, the civilization was destroyed. It was killed. and a much inferior version of it was created as a westphalian nation state so 1947 what happened 15th august 1947 should be a day of mourning for india it was the day of transfer of power from one set of crooks to another set of crooks before 1947 indians were fighting against everything the british stood for against their system of governance against their laws against their judiciary against their police against everything after 1947 the same system continued that we were opposing but now we were told it is our own system and that is how we were colonized and that is how colonization was perpetuated and we are still colonized today somebody who is 15 years old thinks that this entire system is our own system that we ourselves made while it is not it is the oppressive british colonial system So 1947 was the year Indians all the wool was pulled over the Indians eyes and the same system was continued but under the guise of being your own system. So in India in 1947 India was truncated India became something much lesser India became something much inferior to what it has always been. From a civilization state India became a mere nation state. So I don't think that this is something we need to celebrate it is something we need to mourn it should be called transfer of power divas from one set of crooks to another set of crooks we gained nothing we gained a new set of rulers a new set of oppressors in 1947 and the same system continues today of course i'm not saying today's rulers all of them are oppressive many of them mean well but it's taking a lot of time to change this we're not seeing any real change in real time which is disappointing so that is what it was it was a transfer of power india was not born in 1947 india we don't even know when india was born definitely more than 10000 years ago even probably much more much before that so 1947 is actually a tragic year and it is the year that we adopted the british ways which we were supposed to reject Samarjit Sahu says aren't we following the british legacies like the judiciary system the administrative system etc we are still using the british railways and keeping the british architecture even after they are the epitome of evil and they are unjust so does that make us good or bad look good question good question uh, i do keep saying that we need to reject the british constitution the, the western constitution of india the british laws that we still continue the british system the entire colonial system etc now when it comes to british railways and british architecture we have to understand this the railways were created by the british for the purpose of extracting wealth out of india we, we know that but the railways were created with indian money with money the british stole from india they were built using indian labor so it is indian money it is indian labor so why do we call them the british railways the british built them that but why should we not use them it is our own money and our own labor that gave rise to these railways so it is ours it is our it belongs to us it doesn't belong to the british similarly all these big buildings the british built the this uh, 
gothic architecture the so called indo saracenic architecture and the art deco nonsense which is there in bombay mumbai whatever all of that was built by the british again with indian money and with indian labor so why should we not use it it belongs to us it belongs to the people of india it was built with indian money with indian labor please understand that the british did it but they did it with indian money and indian labor so that's why we should use it we should make use of it it doesn't make us good or bad or anything we have to use what we have that's it uh bhagwan says you explained many things about indian way of style but democracy it's is itself alien to india there were only emperors and kings in the past should whether please explain your views on whether india should have a democracy or an emperor democracy is being misused by politicians as they are dividing india and people of india in many ways that even the british couldn't divide in these ways so please explain your views yeah so you are right india before the british has always had a system of monarchy either emperors or kings and this western styled democracy is of course something that is alien to india i agree with you but india also had a democratic system whether it is in the mahajanapadas or even before that in which you would have a centralized ruler the emperor or the king but on at the local level people would elect their own officials and representatives so whether it was the at the village level or the city level or the state level it would all be done under the supervision of the king or the emperor but people would have self rule india is in fact the birthplace of democracy even western researchers have remarked upon the fact that in the entire saptasindhu region in the indus saraswati region whether you look at cities like mohenjadaro harappa rakigari pirana or any other smaller settlement from that era you don't see a single palace you don't see a single such structure which indicates aristocracy or royalty the most imposing structures are always the the assembly hall or the bath house or the meeting hall so these were clearly systems that were not uh tyrannical or there was no such uh, imperial system in in this in this era it was clearly some form of democracy so that has been india system it has been a mixed system we have a, a country a civilization state of the size of india a, a entire subcontinent needs a very strong central uh rule from one location so it needs that so yes india that's why india always had emperors and kings but you also had democracy so it was a mixed system now when it comes to western style liberal democracy that we are practicing today it is incredibly counterproductive for example we have this anti nationalism that proliferates nowadays in the guise of free speech you have a judiciary that is not accountable to anybody it elects and selects itself in any other democratic country in the world the judiciary is selected by the parliament or the elected bodies of the of the country it's only in india that the judici- judiciary is under no one's uh, oversight so the judiciary in india is unaccountable and so on and so forth india's democracy itself is incomplete because within every single political party there is no democracy it is like a fiefdom and that's why we every time you go for the for for voting it's always the four or five same parties and same same people so it's so before 
2014, people used to complain that you always get the same four or five people that you have to vote for. So it's always the cho- a choice bet- from between the, the worst of the worst. So you have to choose the person who is the least evil. That sort of thing. So democracy is incomplete because there is no internal democracy within political parties. Some political parties have a better level of internal democracy, but the vast majority of political parties in India are family-run enterprises. There is no democracy within. So this system is actually, it makes a mockery of democracy. And secondly, if if you want to actually stand for election, you don't stand a chance because it's all run on money. Unless you have several crore rupees to throw around during your election campaign, nobody will even come to know about you and you will definitely not not win the election. That's why independent candidates never win elections and so on. So you are right that uh, this Western style fake liberal democracy is not suitable for India. The Westminster parliamentary system that we have is something that evolved on a small island in the Atlantic Ocean. It is not suited for a subcontinent-sized civilization such as India. That's why India needs reforms, but the political system that we have today is a self-serving system. The politicians have come to power because of the system. They are beholden to the system. They are invested in the system and they will not allow it to change. So we are in a conundrum today. That's the problem. So I agree that this this system is not good for the country in the long run. Okay, let me now take some live chat questions. I will take a few live chat questions now. So if you have any questions that you would like to ask me, please ask me now. Please talk about Heo Huang Ok, the Indian princess who married a Korean prince. It is said she was from the Ayutthaya kingdom, which might be Ayodhya. Some say she was from Kanyakumari. I have spoken about this in the past. There is a small video clipping on this channel in which you can see that. So Heo Heo Huang Ok is an ancient Korean queen. She, according to Korean tradition, she was born in... Ayutthaya in India. She came to Korea. She married married the local king. And she is the ancestor of many, of a significant percentage of the Korean population today. So her ancestral kingdom is called Ayutthaya, which clearly is Ayodhya. There can be no other name. Some people say she was from Kanyakumari because, they, because there is some fish symbol, etc. This nonsense has to stop. This is something that uh, emerges from Tamil chauvinism. Some people claim that because there is some fish symbol, that's why she was a South Indian queen, not a North Indian queen. Well, tell me, is there any place called Ayodhya in South India? There's none. So, yeah, that's that's what it is. She was from Ayodhya, according to the, to the, to the Korean history itself, according to the version of history that they have, she was from Ayodhya, which is Ayodhya. That is their, their pronunciation of the word Ayodhya. So that's what we know about her. Uh, Her tomb is there somewhere in Korea. So that in brief is about this ancient connection between India and Korea that goes back about 2000 years before today. Okay, some more questions. 
Aniruddha says, if we make Sanskrit the official language, some people will make it a Hindu-Muslim issue. How do we deal with that? To deal with that, we need good leadership. A strong leadership will deal with any such issues. This entire Hindu-Muslim nonsense, it is because India is so weak and divided. Like I said, if Subhash Chandra Bose had been the president or prime minister or dictator of India, none of this Hindu-Muslim nonsense would have happened in this country. Everybody would have been Indian. And India would have slowly reverted to its original state under somebody as strong a leader as him. So this entire situation we have today, so much division in the country, it's because of this fake democracy we spoke about in which freedom of speech becomes a fundamental right and freedom of speech becomes takes the guise of separatism and anti-nationalism. So India needs a genuinely strong leader. That kind of leader, unfortunately, emerges once in a thousand years. But that's what India needs again today. So we wait for a great leader. Okay, who? what else do we have? How many temples did the Turks destroy? Thousands, maybe tens of thousands. Uh, there is a book by Sitaram Goel, I think, in which there is a list of temples that have been destroyed. I think it's by Sitaram Goel. I'm not 100% sure. There was a book I had seen a long time ago. But the number is definitely in the thousands or, or most likely in the tens of thousands because there are still great temples standing in southern India and there are almost no functional great temples in northern India. There are only ruins. So clearly these were in the tens of thousands, small, big, large, etc. Rishabh Chaudhary says, why is there no fixed length of the yugas with the present evidence 25,920 years? It looks plausible. Some people, some theories suggest we are deep into the ascending Dwapar Yuga. See, there is a great deal of confusion about what the yugas are and what is the length of a yuga and all that. Some people said that India is about 70 million years old and all. I'm sorry. The earliest evidence of anatomically modern human beings is about 250,000 years before today. And those humans who lived 250,000 years before today, they looked quite different from us. They had very prominent uh, ridge, uh, ridge bones and all that. They looked more like archaic human beings. So if India is several lakh years old, then it, it means that Indians India has existed since before human times. So we need to keep science, scientific evidence in our mind. I, I don't know what is the calculation of the yugas. I don't know how it is calculated. Clearly these calculations that go back millions of years are, are wrong. Some, so I, I don't really know. I am not an expert in this subject. I have not studied everything in the world. But these fantastical claims that India is several million years old, these are clearly nonsense. We have to first understand what science is, what science tells us, what scientific evidence tells us. So that to the best of our understanding, from the best evidence that we have today, India was settled 70,000 or 65,000 years before today from the last out of Africa migration. That is what I demonstrated in the, first of the, in the first or second question itself of this session. So India is at the most 70,000 years old. Human settlement, modern human homo sapiens settlement is about 70,000 years old 
in India. India was the first founding zone of the last out of Africa migration. How can a yuga be millions of years old? And even this this evidence that you are stating 25,000 something years old. I mean, what is the evidence for this? Who has come up with this with this uh, date or calculation? The problem is that these researchers, I mean, they mean well. There are so many researchers, uh, amateur researchers in India who are trying to decipher our history because our academics, our trained academics are not doing this. So all these uh, untrained researchers, amateur researchers are trying to figure this out. And because they lack scientific understanding, etc., they are coming up with fantastical dates and all these things. And this is adding to the confusion instead of clarifying matters. So I think the yugas may have been much shorter than what these figures give us. Maybe according to some interpretations by certain people, we may even be at the very end of the of the Kali Yuga. We may be perhaps soon going to transition into a new Satya Yuga perhaps. So I don't know. I have not studied this in any detail. I am not an expert in this. But clearly these fantastical calculations are clearly wrong. They can't be right. Adish Raut says, did George Mallory reach the summit and die coming down? We don't know. So you, he's talking. Uh, Adish is talking about the first, uh, one of the first attempts to scale Mount Everest, Sagarmatha. Uh, Mount Everest is the colonial name of this mountain. It is either Sagarmatha or Chomolongma in Tibetan. So it was Irwin and Mallory, Ernest Irwin and George Mallory, I think, two Englishmen who tried to climb this mountain, I think in the 1930s, if I am not mistaken. I don't remember the exact decade, but yeah, much before Edmund Hillary and Tenzing Norgay. So it seems there is some circumstantial evidence that Mallory may have reached the summit and he died coming down. We know both died. Their bodies were not found. Only I think only Irwin's body was found recently and one body is still missing, most likely Mallory. So we don't have the evidence thus far. One of these guys took a camera with him. If we can find the camera, we may be able to get some information, whether they actually took a photograph from the summit or not. But it is definitely a possibility that they may have summited and they may have died while coming down. That's an interesting, ancient, reasonably ancient mystery. Okay, let me take one last question for this session. Okay, who built the Qutub Minar? Because there are many evidences of it being a Hindu structure. It is one of these Turks. Uh, who was it? Was it Qutbuddin, Qutbaldin Aybak who built it? Most likely it is named after Qutb al-Din Aybak. So most likely it was that guy, that Turkic invader, occupier who built this. But like you say, if you examine the structure itself, it is very clear that it's a Hindu Jain structure. So what happened was that in the place where you have this Qutb Minar today, there was a temple complex. I'm not sure if it was a Jain complex or a Hindu complex. It's the same thing essentially, same culture. So this temple complex was destroyed by these Turks and the material, the bricks and the stones, etc. from these temples, they were repurposed into building this tower structure, this Qutb Minar. 
So if you go to the place and you examine it, it's clear that these stones, they came from temples because you have temple carvings and carvings of gods and deities on the rocks and the stones of this structure. So it was built from material taken from destroyed Hindu or Jain or both temples. That is the short answer. Okay, I know you guys have lots of other questions. I could take another four hours, five hours, but I think I will stop for today. So thank you everybody for all your questions. Great fun answering these questions. Let's continue having these conversations. And I will see you in the next session in the next week. Until then, take care. Thank you very much. Have a good day. Have a good night. Bye.